Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperice.com. Michael Arnett. Tall Tines Archery on Instagram reached out to me and he said, Hey, you've had a lot of these high fence podcasts on there and uh, you seem to be almost pro high fence. Would you mind having a differing opinion on the subject on your podcast? I was like, Yeah, of course. That's what we're about. That's the kind of podcast we want. I want to have amicable discussions with people that don't see the world the way that I see it. And Michael certainly does not see the world the way that I see it, which is why we wanted to have him on. He's a very thoughtful individual, and you'll see it, and well, not you won't see it, you'll actually hear it, because this is an audio medium. And you'll hear his thoughtfulness through the podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I hope that it inspires you, as you listen to it, to think more for yourself about this thing that you love so much, which is hunting. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's my name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Check that. All good. All right, my brother. Well, thanks for having me on. You called this party together, well, man. I did. I, this is what this is what I like about this this world that I live in. Right? Is that uh, we're open to anyone, man. We're open to anyone to have a discussion, to have a conversation, and that's what we love to have. We love to have differing opinions come on this podcast. And I don't know you from Adam. <laughs> I've just walked you through how to install Google Chrome <laughs> on your Mac. <laughs> um, but uh, Michael Arnett, Tall Tines Archery on Instagram, reached out to me and said, Hey, I have a differing set of opinions around a lot of things that we've been talking about lately. 
and I'd love to have the opportunity to have a chat. And uh, I said, hell yeah, let's do it. And um, so firstly, Michael Arnett, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Have you ever done a podcast before, Michael? Uh, I've done a very few small podcasts. Nothing nothing crazy. We're small. We're a small podcast. I not that small. Uh, <laughs> I've been listening to you guys for a while. I really appreciate uh, I really appreciate what you do. So, oh man, I much appreciate that. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll say this to the audience. You know, one of the things that you emailed me was like, Hey, I, you know, please give me a call so that we can talk through some of these things. And, and the reason why I didn't call you, obviously, number one, I'm just right now, my life is like freaking nuts. <laughs> but the other reason I didn't call was because what we're going to do right now would have happened on the phone call and it wouldn't as be as genuine and as authentic as this will be. It'll be right organic. Now. It will be organic <laughs> and it'll be genuine. And um, you just lose a little bit of luster, you know, to you'd like lose a bit of the chutzpah when it comes to conversations. Um, but Michael, give us an introduction, like who you are and what you do. I see you've got a bunch of archery bow, you know, we're going to get into this, but uh, traditional archery equipment behind you. and Yeah. Um, so I'm just a, a hunter who loves archery, and I'm, I would call myself an archery hunter. Um, and I love the outdoors and everything about it. And I, I was – obviously, I've been thinking a lot, and – and I do a lot of thinking, maybe too much thinking sometimes. Thinking's good, my friend. After what I just went through today, thinking is good. Man, I, I, I mean, it, it changed the tone of the podcast for me a little bit, what, what you're talking about, um, the, the issue that we just brought up. But um, yeah, it's sobering. So you are a traditional archery hunter. Have you been a traditional archery hunter your entire life? Um, no. Um, I started with a compound. And I grew up in a non-hunting family. Okay. And just the, the more I meet other hunters and um, develop relationships, the more I realize how unique my upbringing was when it comes to that. I Because... I feel like at least nine out of 10 people I know who are avid hunters had a figure in their family that taught them. Um, and maybe that's a generalization, but, um, well, I'm the same as you. I only started hunting when I was 26 years old. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, and I, I think that it's becoming more common. Um, I, so I, at a young age started to be interested in it. My parents didn't know what to do about it, <laughs> didn't know what, mm-hmm. had no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I almost had to convince my family that hunting was ethical. And early on had to come up with kind of a, with a reason for why I wanted to hunt, mm-hmm. why I wanted to mm-hmm. pursue animals in that manner and i think that 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 really caused me to probably think about things a little more at a young age than maybe some people would and to think about different perspectives not that um not that that's better or worse just it's it's just different 
Um, and so it's just something ethics and um, access and affordability are, are things that are very important to me because I also many, many years were spent wanting to hunt, but not having a place to and not having mm. uh, really the ability to. And where did you, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up mostly in Oklahoma, Northeastern okay. Oklahoma, Tulsa area. So, but my parents are both from California and we lived there for a little while when I was younger. So. Okay. And where do you live now? I live in Wichita, Kansas now. Okay. So. And day job? Uh, so I do orthotics and prosthetics one day a week. I've done that for almost 12 years and okay. I just started doing uh, traditional archery building of traditional bows pretty much oh, full time. Cool. So it's a big jump and, uh, it's been a big lifestyle change, but I really enjoyed it. So for the first, another thing that's changed is for the first time, I've had to look inward because when I post things about hunting, um, it just hits different when you make your living at it. Mm. And I feel like there's a, I feel a higher sense of responsibility. For sure. For um, sure. So, so yeah, I listened to your, um, I think you had five or six podcasts on high fence. Yeah, you, you. So we had a big series about high fences, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't know if it was you or someone else. Like, man, stop talking about high fences. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, that wasn't me. <laughs> and I said, I was like, uh, I was like, yeah, you know, honest. You, you have to be introspective a little bit. You know, you have to take people's considerations in. And I think it was a little long. Like five to six was a lot. Um, I think we could have done it in four, maybe. There were some really good ones. Like I liked, you know, Wayne, who was the ranch manager of the high fence, was like, he was the best one because he was like, I manage a high fence operation. I don't think this is hunting, you know, kind of deal. Uh, um, okay. So anyway, Wayne's yeah. was really good. Yeah. Wayne's was really good. Kyle Lang was really good, the helicopter guy. Who, him. Mm -hmm. um, he kind of uh, was around for the start of it, it sounded like. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Thirty-five years in the industry, yeah. you know, catching game and stuff. So yeah, we had a, a big series of high fence uh, podcasts. We had a big film that came out out of Africa, which was about. I could have done a little bit of better job in terms of like the the storyline of Out of Africa. It was a little disjointed. We didn't really have a clear focus. We had like this beginning message, which was we got this controversy about a fence, a high fence that like both sides go up against each other in the hunting community. But then I diverted it to uh, populations of scimitar horned oryx and addicts and, and how they've grown in Texas because of high fences and because of the value that they bring. Um, regardless, it was a topic that I wanted to discuss because it's very, very divisive mm -hmm. in our hunting community, like so many things, right? You're in the traditional archery business and mm -hmm. people will look down their nose at the compound archery guys and they'll all look down their nose at me because I like to use a boomstick. You know, I'm not, as I said, I like to, I like to bow hunt. I am not a bow hunter. Um, and so, yeah, you, you, you reached out to me and you said, Hey, 
I think I have a differing opinion to what you have been talking about associated with high fence. Well, and I don't even know what your opinion is of high fence. I just, I, I heard that the more pro high fence, you know, brought up in, in the podcast. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I hope you're going to have the other side of it. <laughs> so, yeah. So let me, I'll, I'll start then. I'll put it out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll step back in context a little bit instead of taking it as a high fence. If it's legal, mm-hmm. you have to step back, and it's and it's regulated, mm-hmm. and you do it respectfully. I'm pro whatever you do. Okay. Um, when it gets to a high fence, I know that there are operations that are quasi put and take. That's a which is that's a word I hadn't heard until I listened to those podcasts. Which is everyone's perception typically of a high fence, which is a hundred acres, smallish, really the deer are really constrained, or whatever animal is really constrained, and it's really sit in this, in the, get in the box blind or whatever blind you're in, and wait for him to step out in the only field that's in there, and you shoot it. Okay. I've been in six hundred acre high fences for white-tailed deer, and seen amazing white-tailed deer. But been told not I'm not allowed to shoot any of them. Mm-hmm. Um, or I can shoot does, you know, because they were doing management. Recently, between the podcast and today, I'll tell you this: I was in a high fence, a very, very, very well-renowned high fence operation in Texas, mm-hmm. a three thousand acre pasture. And when I say pasture, I mean fenced area mm-hmm. don't think of it as just one flat area with no trees okay it has i don't know maybe 20 species in it and one of the species is elant which is a huge african antelope 60 species and the guy that i was with in the buggy he wanted to shoot an elant mm-hmm. i was like all right i'll come with you mm-hmm. we got in the buggy at 9 30 in the morning mm-hmm. probability luck is playing a role in every piece of hunting that happens. You oh, know this better than anyone. Yes, I do. <laughs> so we could have driven into the pasture and the Elon could have been standing there on the road and we could have shot it in five minutes. Mm-hmm. If that scenario occurred, was that because of the high fence or is that because of luck? Or was our luck and our probability higher, which is probably an argument that you would say, because of the high fence? And I would agree. Mm-hmm. However, we spent 12 hours in that buggy, 9.30 a.m. to 9.30 p.m., driving at about 10 miles an hour. Michael, we traveled 133 miles. That, the GPS location of where we tracked, the entire block was blue. We couldn't drive anymore, mm. anywhere else. We saw one Ireland at 8.15 in, at night. Mm probably the toughest bloody hunt <laughs> I have been on in America. Um, so I've actually hunted a high fence once. Okay. Uh, as a, you remember the big ice storm in Texas? Mm-hmm. So I had a javelina hunt planned with a friend and it got canceled the day we got there. Um, and so my friend had a friend who had, I think a 1500 acre, maybe 3000 acre. High fence okay. operation. Um, 
and he made a call and we helped them fix some pipes and we got to hunt javelina uh, which are kind of unique because they they crawl under the fence a lot i mean sure i'm sure the fences still keep them in but they find ways sure um so i would agree with you completely that um just because a hunt is in a high fence does not mean that it's easy. Okay. But does that mean it's fair chase? So I think that that is probably subjective. I think that there could be differing opinions on that. I would say, no, it's not. Okay. Why do you say it's not? But let me tell you this. That's not my argument against high fence. Oh, okay. So, and, and what I've, the, the issues that I see, and I think many other people would agree with me here, are not the, the fine nuances of, of how hard or how easy or the methods even, for instance, driving around in a vehicle. Some people would really frown on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when you get into the weeds on those issues, you really start, and I've been guilty of this, okay, looking down my nose at other people because they do something differently. I just think that's not, certainly it's a discussion to be had. The discussion shouldn't be silenced on how we do things and why, mm-hmm. but personal preference, right? Personal All those preference. things. Yes. Right. For instance, mm-hmm. one of the guys that you had in the high fence, I think he, he said something negatively about uh, sitting and waiting on corn piles. <laughs> that was Wayne. That was Wayne. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of chuckled a little bit because, you know, I, I would rather not hunt over a corn pile, but I have nothing against, you know, someone else doing it, you know, and I've done it myself. Not corn, but, you know, baited bear and things like that. So mm-hmm. I think that in order to have a real discussion about high fence and how it affects hunting, we have to step away from that. Because okay. it could be very easy. It could be very hard. Sometimes mm-hmm. it can be, because animals are animals. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they can be incredibly pressured in a high fence scenario. 100%. Um, and especially if you're using, for instance, traditional archery equipment. Um, doesn't matter where they are or what they are. Animals don't like to be within, <laughs> you know, those kind of ranges of human beings if they feel like you're sneaking up on them or anything like that. So Right, right, right. Um, but I would say my concerns are not how hard it is, not specific ethics. Also, I'm glad you did those podcasts because those were all really nice people. Mm-hmm. Um, who I, any hunter would probably have a lot in common with. So it's not to demonize those people at all. Mm-hmm. Right. And I want to be careful not to do that. Um, so those aren't the concerns, but some main concerns that I, I've kind of like to talk about. Um, number one would be disease. And I don't think we really need to get into the weeds on that, but it's obviously at least a risk. Yeah. Certainly higher densities of animals in a, Confined anywhere, area. Anywhere. It doesn't have to be in confined area, right? Conf- exactly. And so that's Any- why I kind of don't want to do the weeds on it because I just got a text from a friend that, you know, we're having a major outbreak of EHD here. 
you know. Um, so, I mean, disease can happen anywhere. Sure. But obviously certain diseases like chronic wasting disease are more of a risk. Um, mm -hmm. The big one, probably the biggest, is the ownership of wildlife. We have the American model, which is... Damn, hold on, hold on. We don't have... I don't even have a whiskey yet. <laughs> Shit, the ownership of wildlife. Yes. This is North American wildlife model stuff that you're talking about right here. Yeah, it's pretty important. I mean, can you own something that's wild? Should you own something that's wild? Is it wild if you own it? <laughs> um, not just that, but we have a model that's built on wildlife being a public trust. Mm -hmm. which I wouldn't say is necessarily better, but they certainly collide and are in major conflict. So let me ask this. Mm -hmm. If, if your, if your major issue is with the public ownership is with ownership, right? It's a, it's a major issue. Yes. It's, okay. Yeah. Okay. So let's, we'll tackle the first one. Mm -hmm. We'll tackle whatever issue comes off this one. <laughs> If ownership is a major issue, where do you stand with private land investment in the land itself? Right. Well, I believe in private property. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I believe that that's a just a central tenet of the American dream, really. Right. Absolutely. Um, at the same time. I mean, and this is another thing, like when we talk about the issues that I and other people have with a high fence scenario and high fence as a management tool, generally speaking, mm -hmm. we're talking about some bigger problems that really high fence is a small piece of some of the issues that come up with uh, really with economics and industry kind of overpowering tradition and access to a certain extent. And that's mm -hmm. just the world we live in. Yeah, there's business and economics mm -hmm. that are threaded into the idea of private land ownership, number one, and then the ability to have any sort of business in the hunting industry space. So you now are business in the hunting industry space. So a guide and an outfitter in New Mexico who says, I want to be a guide and an outfitter to hunters in New Mexico. And there's a series of podcasts that you're going to be very interested in when we drop them here soon. Called, And it's all about the E-plus system in New Mexico, which is the elk. It's the landowner, it's the landowner elk tag program in New Mexico, yeah. which is essentially the, the whole public ownership debate yes, wrapped up in this, in this tag allotment system. Very much so. Which is... And there's certain bits and pieces to it that I agree with, and there's certain bits and pieces that I don't agree with. Right. You know, the, the fact that they have a formula, and, and they fix the formula, and they fix certain things that, mm -hmm. you know, a guy that has two acres gets five tags because he just happens to be in this amazing habitat that waited higher mm -hmm. for a tag allotment. Well, you can't do that anymore. You have to have a minimum acreage and, and, and get those tag allotments. Right. Which, which... And there's, I mean, that's not limited to New Mexico, but New Mexico is definitely heavy on the land or tag issue. Um, it's definitely a private land model. Mm -hmm. um, you know, favors private land and the ownership 
if you want to call it that, the ownership of wildlife on those private lands, which to me is rather, instead of calling it ownership, it's rather, hey, we know that you're doing your, your, your part. You're being the steward that you need to be. You're putting habitat on the ground. You're keeping habitat on the ground, not putting habitat. You're keeping habitat on the ground. But you're also having some some effects. And there's, this is where the, the sort of – it becomes a little gray, right? Mm -hmm. Is that, yeah, you're going to have some losses. Mm -hmm. you're, you're having some agricultural losses. You're having some depredation issues. And as a, compens a compensatory mechanism, mm -hmm. we're going to give you some tags. Mm -hmm. And you can either use them yourself or you can sell them. Right. For whatever you want, by the way. And also – those tags are probably good on public land, by the way. Depending on the system, <laughs> yes. depending on the unit. And that was another controversy, Robbie, right? Is that I, these know, guys... I know some guys that uh, are good guys. They hunted a unit in a state that would take me 18 points to draw. And they hunted public land in that unit on a landowner tag. I've got nothing against them, but I think yeah. that's potentially... Something that maybe shouldn't happen. I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Land. No, no, you're right. Those those unit wide tags are another crux of the issue down right. there, in which is the guys that get the unit wide tag from the private land mm -hmm. can hunt the public land. So, I either like quadrupling the amount of acres that they can hunt, but the guys who draw a public land unit that have waited 18 years must they can't hunt private land, right? And, and that's a very complicated issue and but I I think I think you also see how it it is tied into the these themes of trying to not work use a, a catchword here. <laughs> use it. Um corporatism, you know. I mean mm -hmm. half the time these aren't I really don't want to talk about landowner tags. It's a totally different issue, but half the time, yeah, yeah, these are, I mean, these are out of state companies that are um, working the system to develop these relationships with the landowners and sell to the as as high as possible. Um, and so, the dog's it, going crazy in the background. I'm sorry. That was my <laughs> that was my dog. <laughs> Is it better? No, it's all good. Okay. But uh yeah, so I'll listen to them. So how do we how do we fund wildlife conservation then if there's no private component to it? Um well like how do we how does that landowner interact with wildlife? How's that landowner because to me that's the crux of the matter here. Mm -hmm. How do you incentivize a landowner to care? That I'm going to keep habitat because it's it's because it, it to me this whole caring component comes back down to the it's the African model i.e. if it pays it stays okay because mm -hmm. if it doesn't pay in Africa yes probably the same thing as New Mexico doesn't pay I'm gonna get rid of it it needs to go or someone needs to help me out here. Otherwise, I'm going to put cattle, or I'm going to put goats, or I'm not going to put alfalfa anymore, or I'm going to fence. You know, I've got to fence them out. And who's going to? Why am I have to pay for fencing animals out if you're telling me I can't benefit off those animals? Yeah, and um, you know, I have family in New Mexico, and uh, a lot of times 
you know, those landowners, um, you know, they sell the antler tags and then they mow down the, the others, you know, <laughs> and, they, and it's, they can't take the meat, they can't utilize them, but they can, they can kill them, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I think sometimes it, it actually hurts the value of the overall population of the maternal population. Um, but, um, all right. So ownership, it's a sticky wicket, definitely sticky wicket. Second concern. Mm -hmm. Um, other concerns would be perceptions from the non hunting. Uh, I listened mm -hmm. to one of your interviews with Ryan Dalton and mm -hmm. it came up actually. Um, the other issue is, uh, you know, we're talking about private land. Do you think we? Do you think non-hunters perceive hunting in a in a worse light because of high fences? Um, I think it depends. For instance, Ryan was in Namibia, mm -hmm. which is known as a, a more of a free-range area of Africa. Could be, but it's still like 50,000 acres behind a high fence. Well, it is now. It didn't used to be. <laughs> mm, it didn't, yeah, it didn't used to be. That's right. I mean, but 10 it didn't years used ago, to have as much wildlife either. Well, back in the no, day. 10 years ago, there were a lot more places that they did have wildlife and they didn't have high fences. And I think that, see, you're from Africa. Mm -hmm. So you know far more about it than I do. Um, I would much more agree with the necessary evil. <laughs> Just we'll call it that mm -hmm. to protect wildlife. But at the same it's interesting. Time, I had a I had a conversation with a guy this morning. Mm -hmm. It was a very and, and maybe this will help your argument. Let me say that that the high fence scenario, mm -hmm. the national park scenario in Africa, is a protectionist system, right? It's an exclusionary system. Mm -hmm. And he is a re he's a regenerative ecologist. And he says that people and cattle need to be integrated into the system, not excluded from the system. Mm -hmm. Well, I think Aldo Leopold had a really good quote. Um, he said, uh, cease to be intimidated by the argument that the right action is impossible because it does not yield maximum profits, or that the wrong action is to be condoned because it pays. Mm. Uh, Aldo Leopold has some pretty good quotes. I, I don't know what his opinion would be, but I feel like, uh, let me take care of this dog real quick. <laughs> yeah. Here, buddy. He's excited. All right. Uh, sorry, German short hair point. Yeah, you're good. It's all good. Um, I think. We, ha we have to balance profits and the other concerns. 
And if and you're right, if they're imbalanced in one way, that's a problem. And part of the foundations of our American model of conservation is to bring value to wildlife. Um, but on the other hand, it doesn't have to meet, yield maximum profits, and and that's probably the last the last real issue that I don't necessarily have with it, um, but I know it affects a lot of people. Um, it affects people in Africa and, te and Texas specifically because high fence has kind of become so widespread. And some people listening to this maybe haven't driven through, uh, you know, certain parts of South Texas where you can drive for, I think I drove for a couple hours, maybe an hour and a half with a high fence on one side or the other mm -hmm. in Texas. I mean, there's places where it's very widespread. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same thing in South Africa. If you drove down a highway in South Africa, that's why it, you know, mid Texas, hill country Texas, South Texas feels like Africa to me because mm -hmm. you've got nice highways, you've got big shoulders with a grassy slope off, and you've got a big high fence, mm -hmm. you know, right there. That's just, that's normal in terms of in South Africa as well. Right. It adds cost. And South Texas is one of the least affordable places to hunt whitetail. Like you mentioned, like, not does. Hundred percent. But it's it's an issue for a lot of people. And so access is the third one, is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Accessibility or affordability, or both, sort of combined. Both. Um, one of the problems is Texas has very little public land. Mm -hmm. Texas is a net net exporter of hunters. Mm -hmm. uh, every year all kinds of people from Texas have to go outside of Texas to find affordable hunting, to find public land hunting, not just mm -hmm. for species, um, for whitetail. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, Texans don't hunt Texas for whitetail. Mm. A lot of them. And it's because it's unaffordable. Do you think that'll have, do you think that's having an impact on the hunting community? Well, I'm from Oklahoma. It's definitely having an impact in Oklahoma. Because of Texans coming to you, yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I don't blame I don't blame them at all. You know, um, they're going to go where they can find good, affordable hunting. Sometimes on a lease, sometimes on public land. And the difference there is, Oklahoma doesn't have a lot of public land, but it has quite a bit of a percentage more than Texas. And if Texas had you know, just a, a smaller percentage of public land more than it has, I mean, that can make a big difference in affordability, mm -hmm. a big difference. Because mm -hmm. you have some competition with easily accessed land and some availability and that people aren't willing, all of a sudden aren't willing to pay $20,000 mm -hmm. for a deer lease, which mm -hmm. is not uncommon. Um, and we, you know, we could talk about some of the more extreme cases of, you know, money and, and, uh, just, I don't know, just strange behavior with high fence. Um, but for instance, uh, there was an oil truck that hit a buck in a high fence ranch and 
the whole company got a bill for what twenty thousand dollars or something like that. Oh, I could imagine. <laughs> I could imagine. You know, um, I personally, actually, the high fence um, that I hunted. Um, there's a story that involves helicopters and overnight high fence building. Mm. Um, so you can own more of the wildlife, you know. <laughs> so, you know, it just, but that bad behavior happens in any scenario. Sure, sure. So, um, but, but so yes, if you, what... if you listen to Robbie, um, I think he shared a, Robbie or Ryan? I'm sorry, Ryan. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like, let's hear this. I want to hear what Robbie said. Yeah. So he said, "What did he say?" I wrote it down here. Um, oh, here it is. Um, I, he he had he had some really good one-liners, but he seemed to share kind of an appreciation for, especially the hunt over the shooting. Mm. and the challenge over mm-hmm. the success and also seemed to have kind of a disdain um, for commercialization of hunting. Just mm-hmm. it, well, it almost in, in, now, we're talking guess, Europe, his, pers- you know, yeah, yeah. I guess from his perspective, it, it makes sense. Right. And I think again, what the point that you're trying to get to here is the commercialization sort of sort of dilutes down right the idea of why we do it yes it does right it's it it, it sort of takes away the as ryan a non-hunter dare i say anti-hunter sees it is that there is a pursuit to it and and hunting by definition is chase and seek and is inherently has failure built into it the definition that's why it's hunting not killing Mm. and the statistics show that constantly um and i think it's a fine line when dealing with money tied to wildlife that any sort of any sort of transactional commercialization of wildlife needs to be understood that there is some sort of value that has to be derived from a resource that is on a property including wildlife mm-hmm. The, just that that's a basic tenant a basic model of economics and but there's a gradient to it <laughs> yeah and it builds on itself robbie like leasing started i believe in texas um and it i mean it has it has spread so quickly um Right, and become very, very popular, the, the which price, makes it now unaffordable, right? Well, it can be. Um, doesn't mean you can't try to knock on doors and, and get some permission mm-hmm. and have some hunting, you know. Um, mm-hmm. There's ways around it, and I don't want to sound, you know, it's easy to sound like someone who's just whining, but it's it's not a selfish thing. It's, I grew up without a place to hunt, and I I understand what it's like to not, to not mm-hmm. have that. Um, but I, the industry builds on itself. It, it gets a little more expensive and then a little more expensive and then mm-hmm. a little more expensive. And, you know, all of a sudden now, um, 
15 years ago, I could have afforded to go moose hunting with an outfitter. You know, not anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Certainly not in mm -hmm. anywhere in central or western Canada, you know. Sure, sure. Um, did you listen to that podcast? Or have you heard of the Land Trust? I did. Um, and I've heard what of the Land Trust. What do you think about Trust. that model? Yeah, that's another one that's going to build on itself. Um, it's it's fledgling right now. Um, they're going to be opening up in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. um, I see. I see his points, um, and I'm glad you had him on because I also listened to the podcast that you did with Matt Ranella. <laughs> and uh, and I I'm Robbie. I'm really glad that you had him on. Well, so are we. Um, and I think he's. He's the most rational person when he's talking to us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, there are some things I don't agree with him on. Oh, everyone doesn't agree with Matt about everything. <laughs> but he said some things that I, I, I they sh it shook me, mm. and I, and I hope it shook other people because, um, you know, while I don't agree. And I think his, I've actually listened to a couple of his podcasts that he has. Um, I think it's the Hunt Quietly podcast. Mm. Um, and as I've, as I've listened to just a couple of them, I, I really think some of what he's saying resonates. Just the building of industry to... To a high point. I mean, I let's look at just whitetails, the most accessible hunting that we enjoy here in America. A lot of people can go in their almost their backyard and hunt whitetails, right? Um, and yet, even even that is sometimes hard to access. I live in Kansas; it's considered a destination state. I grew up in Oklahoma. I got to see you know, the management of, of that state go from really poor for trophy quality to pretty decent, mm -hmm. um, not Kansas, but good. And as that happened, I, I watched the value of, of hunting, um, improve, but access, mm -hmm. uh, be reduced. Um, I even did. I even did a lease for one year in 2018, and uh, someone outbid us. They wanted ten thousand dollars the next year, mm. and it was a it was a big company that was leasing this property from a cattle company, and the company was based in Texas, and they leased land. And you know, I feel like I feel like the industry is definitely building on itself with, and especially with technology. Where it's going to become an increasing issue mm -hmm. to have to have quality hunting, reliable quality hunting that you can count on. But I think if younger hunters specifically can knock on doors, and really if people can avoid paying for hunting that really should be accessible, um, you know, I think the market will show some correction. 
Well, that was Matt Ronella's point, right? It was. Can we just share a little bit? It was. Um, and another thing that really hit home with me when listening to Matt Ronella was um, social media, mm-hmm. which is just a problem of our era. Oh, yeah. And it, I just turned 34. Like I feel like I'm in my generation developed social media to a certain extent. Like, or mm-hmm. I don't know we pioneered it. We, we were at skinny pigs. <laughs> well, I had the, gra- you know, we posted that graph on blood origins that showed, you know, cell phones came in, mm-hmm. you know, 2005 smartphones, 2008 cell phone cameras, 2009. Mm-hmm. And then the rise of Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, WhatsApp, mm-hmm. TikTok. It just was like, Doof. yes. Um, and that's just a, a serious problem for anyone and everyone, mm-hmm. no matter what they do, but especially if they enjoy anything outdoors, it's mm-hmm. causing crowding and sensationalism, you know, and just all kinds of, all kinds of problems. But I, I thought today <laughs> that I wish, I wish someone would have listened to Matt Ranella once or twice. Mm. And just mm-hmm. soaked in some of the things he wanted to say because, I mean, this is a this is a Cecil situation. I I I thought it was, and it could be. Let's hope it's not. But I'll say it won't be. The reason being is that because the individuals are not they're not intelligent individuals. Mm. They're not educated individuals. Um, as far as I can tell, um, they're not a dentist right. that spent a shit ton of money on a lion that has this sort of mega charismatic element to it. Yes, wolves are as mega charismatic Very as lions, so. yeah. but I I think that yes, it's all over the news. You just have to you know Google it, and it's the first three pages of Google right now, and it's on TMZ, and it's on Drudge Report. It's TMZ. <laughs> Um, but I I don't think it's going to get the legs because I think you're actually right. Like they're not who the, who are they going to scapegoat? They're going to scapegoat Some this this lady yeah. who you know is is swearing back and is changing her already changing her story, which means you weren't really honest to start with, and so your credibility is already ruined, and so. It could be. It's. I don't think it will be. I hope it isn't. Um, and you're right. It, it certainly hurt. It certainly hurt hunting. How bad? Time will tell. Right. And that does your point there takes us back to some of the conversation that that you're having with Ryan, the non-hunter. Hmm. Um, there's definitely a. a a deep and automatic disgust for throwing money that the money, when money enters the equation, I suppose. Hmm. Um, maybe that's just human nature. Maybe that's just our own greed. Yeah. Being it, upset about someone else's, I wouldn't even say greed, but just. Mm-hmm. No, I hear you, man. And, you know, even though it may sound like I'm, I'm, 
I guess I, I get in the privileged position to be able to push back a little bit and, and think about it from the other side. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Tanzania, if you went to hunt in Tanzania, right, on one of the classic African safaris, 21-day safari, full bag, buffalo, leopard, lion, you're talking 100 grand. But it has to be 100 grand. It can't be affordable. And here's why. The affordability, if it was affordable, you'd still be able to only take this, the number of hunters you can take, 20 hunters a year, 30 hunters a year, max. Right. You couldn't take 300 to make the, the ends meet. And the reason the money is so high is that logistically, you, you, you need that level of finance to be able to protect 2 million acres. And do you need the fancy lodges and whatnots for sort of ultra luxurious that may be inflating the price? Maybe not. Maybe not at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. But there's countless examples where and whether or not they got shot out, lions and leopards got shot out and they couldn't really have them on quota anymore, or they got banned, you know, right. during an import ban or whatnot. The hunting concession can't operate any longer. Like they can't afford to be open any longer so then we're almost like on this razor's edge right Are we, we're gonna we're gonna say okay the, the commercialization is bad but so Robbie, now we've lost it how much money does it take to have an animal in the wild it should take nothing oh it doesn't matter it doesn't it's, it's all circumstantial it's all circumstantial to the person that it means something to i.e the person on the ground, the community person on the ground that says, oh, that wildlife stays there. It means I get a job. It means I get medical. It means I get well, X, Y, Z. Do you see where oh, I'm going with this? The oh, no, I see where you're going with because it. Because they had to pay people to cook. Well, the rich yeah. folks who showed up or people who saved yep. and saved and saved and saved. Okay. Mm -hmm. They had to uh, do the laundry. They had to <laughs> upkeep the fancy schmancy place mm -hmm. to stay they had to mm -hmm. keep the fences they had to feed mm -hmm. the animals oh no there's no fences in this place okay well in, in a high fence situation that would be one thing right yeah that does add yeah, yeah. it adds value but it adds cost which means required cost right for something in that, the high fence yes definitely in, in texas shouldn't cost anything mm. I've, I've hunted uh, exotic animals in texas that are free range it doesn't cost a thing Mm -hmm. But we have a system in America, a whole system, that Africa doesn't have. And so mm -hmm. I've been to Africa 11 times. Africa's got problems beyond. 11 times? You're 34. I, I've done uh, a lot of prosthetic work in Africa. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, Africa's a different beast oh, when it comes to problems. It is. Yeah. <laughs> but but I'll say this in closing, or, because I know we're getting long here, but um, I think local Africans need to be able to hunt. Like, but do they want to? Uh, do they want that's to? That's true. I, you know, maybe they don't. So here's the scenario I always put myself in. Mm -hmm. If I was a rural African, and it was like I'm in survival mode, right? This is the place I live in. It's survival mode. I'm either I'm 
planting maize for my for my family for the year and I'm going out to find meat to survive. Which is much of Africa. Yeah. So if I was offered that I didn't have to go out and get the meat anymore. It was going to be given to me by some other guy, whoever he is, who wants to come in and wants to shoot that animal, and I'm going to get a job for it. And it's freeing up my time that I don't have to go get that meat anymore. I can do something else now with my time. They haven't developed recreation. Hell no, I'm not going hunting. (laughs) Why would I want to go for fun? (laughs) There's no fun involved with hunting in Africa. For Africans, it's survival. Then why is it? It's a sub- then why do we pay all that money to do it? What's the second? Because there? we don't live. Very simple. Because the necessity of survival is not inherent in our community any longer. That's true. Michael, in you don't have to go hunt in most communities, and some it is. Yeah, it's yeah, of course. But for the most majority, Michael, you don't have to hunt to survive. I do not. You can go to the grocery store and you pick up your meat. Absolutely. That is not the case in Africa. And so the, 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 high, the idea of hunting for pleasure, hunting and pleasure, not pleasure for the kill, but pleasure for adventure, for spirit, for culture, for heritage, for tradition, for all these things that we talk about. If we had to ask Michael Arnett, why do you hunt Michael Arnett? It's actually... You know, quite a luxury to be able to say why you hunt. It really is. Versus doing it to survive, which is, you know, essentially, you know, why hunting began. Mm-hmm. Mike, I love how deep, how deep a thinker you are, my man. I love it. And we need more of you. We need more of your kind of people thinking about things, challenging status quos. Um, and I appreciate it. I do too. I think it's been a good conversation. Final thoughts, Michael, on it. I'll give the floor to you. Uh, Young people. Think before you post on social media. Hallelujah. I would recommend and challenge any person listening to this to wait seven to 10 days, just just wait. 24 hours. At least 24 hours. Let yourself enjoy the process. Think about what you did, what you could have done better. Think about the experience, relish it, consider that you, what it means to take the life of another living animal and you don't have to post it after you wait. You could. Sure. And I love sharing success and I love seeing other people's success. Um, so I don't judge, but yeah, just think about it. And, and one more thing. Uh, social media is pushing reels right now. 30 second, mm-hmm. one minute reels. Mm-hmm. There is no way that you can tell a hunting story in 30 seconds. So if you're going to tell a story, maybe it shouldn't be the 30 seconds of an animal suffering and dying. Not that that's wrong to share, 
but maybe that's not the only thing you should be sharing. And we're in a society where social media is pushing us towards such an instant and trivial uh, picture snippet of life. Um, I'd stay away from the, the suffering and death on, on reels. I just would personally. Yeah, well, suffering and death in general. Coming from someone who, you know, who shared that kind of thing before I really thought about it. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Well, well said, Michael, on it. Uh, appreciate you reaching out, my man. I um, And again, thank you. Appreciate your deep thoughts and uh, your thoughtfulness. Thank you. Thanks for everything in, you do. And uh, engaging. No, my pleasure, my man. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.